This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It's Tuesday, 28th of February, 2023, last day of the month. Uh, just a reminder to myself because it has been an interesting month for bonds with a 60 basis point rise in the U.S. two-year, about half of that for the 10-year. So there's always the risk uh, with these big swings on a given calendar month that you have end-of-month flows. That's not a call or a prediction, just a reminder uh, in case we see something that might be what is uh, you can attribute to if there's no immediate news item uh, driving the price action. I think yesterday's session to me, Peter, felt like a, it had a bit of a feel of uh, some speculative uh, fervor in there with uh, Tesla having a very strong day and a rather odd rally, uh, I felt like, early in the day that sort of erased the Friday uh, sell-off that was inspired by that hot PCE inflation data uh, for January. So, um yeah, but then we sort of settled back to unchanged. So, I, you know, what's the information takeaway? No idea. But it was an odd session, and as well, Europe just uh, screaming back higher and, and basically erasing its sell-off from Friday as well. We've still got this really key support in uh, holding the line, the 200-day moving average, etc. Uh, again, make sure you have your cash with, with these levels where you're so sensitive to whether we're breaking down here. Uh, make sure you have your cash index on, on your radar as well. That's the one where the 200-day moving average is still in place and has not yet been fully tested. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're, we're waiting and watching to see if uh, the yield pressure uh, triggers a capitulation or if we can we can hold the line here. Yeah, I think the U.S. equity market is very much in a, in a limbo here, um, back and forth. And at the one point in yesterday's session, we had a fully engulfing of the Friday's pricing session. And and then we came back towards the, uh, the, the futures close there in the U.S., and we gapped a little bit high in the S&P 500 futures this morning, and now the last time I checked, we were trading somewhat below yesterday's close. So we, it's just back and forth. I think the two things that the market is really rating for here is that one thing is we need more information on inflation and what the bond market decides that will dictate where equities go. I think, and then we have the um, when we have the evolving situation around China. What is it going to be? Is it going to be a, a growth bonanza or is it just a slowly pick up in, in growth or, or what is it? I, I think there is a lot of uncertainty around China. But I was thinking, I, was, I actually wanted to ask you a question, John, but just to, to poke your brain here because, you know, the U.S. 10-year, uh, sorry, the U.S. two-year yield, 4.8%, right? Do you think if you if you buy a two-year bond today in the U.S., will you get ahead of inflation or would you... Will you have a negative real rate return after two years? <laughs> I'm just testing your uh, your views on the inflation here. Well, with our inflation views, uh, you would have a, a very insignificant real return. Mm. Uh, the idea isn't that uh, we think inflation is going to accelerate to 8%, but we think that uh, as it comes down a bit here, it's, that it's going to come down to some level, 3 4%, uh, that's above the 2% target that the Fed has. Um, but built into that two-year rate is the fact that you have the market pricing a peak rate of five plus percent. So one could argue if, if you're really concerned about inflation continuing to accelerate, you can stay in a one year uh, treasury uh, or, you know, T-bill or, or some other note to make sure that you're uh, agile. Of course, the risk is that then yields collapse because we're in a recession and uh, disinflation is, is far greater than we anticipate. And then you can't get the return on the second half of those two years. So it's really important what you're encapsulating by buying a two year note and even more important when you're buying the 10-year uh, T-note, because that has priced into it a very significant come down uh, in inflation. 
Yeah, and, and I think talking about interest rates, uh, I, I did a little piece yesterday, which you can find on analysis.saxo, where, because I, I was driving in on the highway to work and uh, we, we there was a representative of, uh, of industry here in Denmark and, and talking about small and medium-sized businesses and you know, the impact from rising interest rates because you have a lot of floating floating uh, rate bonds and, and loans at banks delivered to the, you know, the, the corporate sector here in Denmark. I think it's pretty much the same everywhere. And he said that it, you know, it was you know, pushing up costs for, for companies and it would reduce investments. And I was just thinking this conventional wisdom, that's also what we get from central banks. Oh, if we just jack up the interest rates, you kill demand and you kill investments. So everything cools down. And I was just, I, I, and you know, it piqued my my interest, and uh, I say, like, okay, let's uh, let's 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 see in the data. And uh, I looked at the S and P five hundred, and and typically because you know because of the accounting rules, we only talk about capital uh, expenditures because those in in accounting terms are the ones you can capitalize on your balance sheet. But you know, there are very good arguments for why marketing spending is also could in theory be capitalized because it builds your brand, R and D as well because it's product development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you if you take total investments, which I said, okay, let's just fully capitalize R and D and the capex. What is the going total investment rate in the S and P five hundred? And as you can see here on slide three, we've accelerated pretty dramatically, I would say, over the past two years. And uh, the current uh, growth rate in total investment among S and P five hundred companies companies is is twenty percent. That's the highest growth rate since two thousand eleven. And if you take out that little uh, peak there in growth rate, you have to go all the way back to the Bonanza credit boom years of 2005 to 2006 to find anything uh, resembling what we're seeing right now. So for all the talk about you know, uncertainty, inflation, high interest rates, etc., companies, in the at least in the S&P 500, seem pretty willingly to to do a lot of investments. And then I, I looked at the, um, I looked at the you know, different quartiles of the U.S. 10-year yield and then looked at the subsequent one-year uh, real investment growth. So I subtracted inflation because if you're in the higher quartile, you have high interest rates and you also have higher nominal. So you would have a bias in the data. So I subtracted inflation. And what you see is on the, what you, what we got, and you can see in the table here on uh, on slide three. So in the, uh, the, the fourth quartile, that is US 10-year yield above 3.85%. That is actually where you ha- have had since 2003, at least, the highest average annual growth rate in total investments in real terms. And then the first quartile is the second, and then you have a little bit wobbly in the middle there on on the on the second and the third quartile. So the, I think that the 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 evidence is not that conclusive that if you have a high interest rate, then everything grinds to a standstill on investment, John. Yeah, well, high real rates should discourage that, but also we we talked about uh, what's the cart and what's the horse uh, in the in the equation here, and that a higher rate could reflect that there's a lot of demand. Uh, for investment, so the hurdle rate to uh, to get that investment means you have to pay a higher interest rate uh, rather than a lower one. So, yeah, jury's out on on some of this, but it's uh, interesting to, to break down the data. Somebody says something that sounds like conventional wisdom, and you test it, and there's there's just not that evidence. And one thing we do need to see, or not do need to see, but one thing you would expect to see if we're seeing a return of inflation, we have talked about there are other dynamics afoot here that it can still feed core inflation for quite some time. But we all know that over a longer period of time, energy is a critical part of the equation for inflation. And Ola, in your space, that crude oil price has been just a bit dead here, to say the least, over the last few months. Uh, what what are you waiting for here as, as you're looking at the crude oil market? Well, basically waiting for a decisive uh, piece of uh, news that uh, can take it out of this, uh, this uh, range, which is, uh, as we can see on slide five, is becoming increasingly tight. 
Um, there's not much room for maneuver now for before we, we see some kind of a, a reaction on, from a technical perspective, at least. I think at this point in time, uh, the, we, we have we've gone through a, a another month of uh, correction here. We're down, uh, we're down again this month, and uh, but seeing a small recovery today, and I think it, it looks like the most of that Fed fund higher adjustment has now been has now taken place. It's been priced in, um, so um, we should not have a complete straight line between uh, higher rates expectations and lower oil prices because it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work like that. But that's that's really been the theme um in in recent weeks and uh now we i think we we're on the on the other side of that and we can again look at what's happening inside the oil market and, and uh, what we're finding there still is is a market that's almost uh given up on china i think that's uh we had an internal meeting this morning and uh basically that's way too early to uh to come to that kind of conclusion so china will will be a, a major force we have a, a two sessions meeting uh this week in the government where they're laying out some of the spending plans uh as far as i believe um and that 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 uh, could be quite interesting to follow. Also, um, we have a uh, Titans of the oil market uh, meeting and gathering in, in London this week. Uh, I'm not there, so that's uh, so not all the Titans, but um, but uh, uh, um, they are basically still looking for higher prices uh, later in the year, and that's also in line with what we're looking for. And I think there's also an interesting piece of news in the Wall Street Journal. Today, that's the that's the the headline there. Frackers are increasing spending, but they're seeing limited gains. Basically, the uh, the inflation that we have seen, which has been driving up the cost of equipment, labor, and materials, as as has uh, really prevented is and also um, several of these shale patches becoming mature and more mature. Basically, raise the question of how much further production can be lifted in the U.S. and if if they're struggling. Uh, then that will leave further power to the OPEC plus group of uh, let's just call it OPEC. Russia is uh, insignificant right now, but uh, the OPEC group they can basically dictate the price. And, and uh, should we see any tightness emerge later in the year? Uh, it's obviously the question that, that then it will raise the question: How quickly will OPEC be to uh, add barrels back into the market? Will they be as quick as they took barrels out of the market uh, late last year? That remains to be seen. So uh, I think we remain constructive. Uh, crude oil at, at this point in time but as you, as you said john it's boxed in it's uh it's been well, sidelined since um well since late november so um we need to see a technical break for that to uh to trigger some reaction in the market yeah and uh interesting as we i think we'll talk about with the tesla uh event today what's it called peter the investor day the investor day exactly yeah we'll talk about that in a moment uh but this race in time between uh, so uh, obviously the shale play has a limited lifespan uh, in terms of being able to ramp up production probably within a few years uh, before it's reaching peak or whether there's a decade from now, I think some of the top consultants would say within a decade or slightly more that shale oil can't grow production, at least in the U.S. Uh, basins there. Uh, the race of time between the ability to continue to produce and, and maintain output globally with uh, the replacement of at least the transportation part of the fossil fuel mix with EVs. But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but just to round out the commodity space, uh, Ola, you've got your latest month to date, since this is the last day of the month, appropriate to do so there on slide six, and some perspective, uh, the forward curves shape for commodities and some conclusions around that. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, I think when, when you have a month like this, where we are uh, we down quite a, quite a bit, it's it's uh, led by industrial metals and precious metals, but also the energy sector taking a taking a bit of a, a tumble here, uh, leaving the overall commodity index down almost five uh, percent of the month. It obviously raised the question: Well, is this the, is this the end of the year? 
the, the commodity to rally. And I think the, uh, the solid answer to that is, is, is no. Uh, we're going through a, a phase here with this month where the dollar has been has has, has peaked, uh, at least for, uh, has, has bottomed out. We've seen some dollar strength. We've seen the uh, readjustment of the uh, fate rate, high expectations. Um, the China focus, which drove market high in general, has also faded somewhat. We think that will come back. And uh, all in all, that's uh, that's just left the market uh, in a take-profit mode this uh, this month. But um, looking at the structure of the curves, they are still uh, firmly in backwardation. Uh, I put that in on, on slide six. They, they're all they're all black and white. It doesn't really matter which one is which. But it's just uh, it's just what you need to focus is on how many of these commodities are above the red line and how many are below. If you are above, then you are in backwardation. That means the front end is trading higher than further out prices. That indicates a market that is still in tight supply. And uh, the curve, as we always say, doesn't lie. And uh, that basically sends me a signal that the market is, is still tight. And any pickup in demand from here will, will trigger a response in terms of, of higher prices. And also just uh, looking at the, the story from the, the shale pads, they need higher prices and so does the mining industry in order to uh, to ensure that the that the production can be maintained in the coming years, especially for the green transformation when you look at the mining sector. So um so yeah, we uh, we are we're seeing this as as a correction, not a not a not a turnaround. All right. And uh, before you get to test uh, Peter on Tesla, because I think this will be a a big day of speculation and the most speculated upon stock with this investor day. Just a brief round out with the FX market. And what we're looking at there, we see these yields still pinned relatively close to the highs of the cycle. It's really the long end uh, of the curve that the, the end is usually is most sensitive to. And we're, again, in limbo there. We've, we've bumped up towards 4% on the U.S. 10-year, for example, but haven't punctured uh, punched through. All the two-year does uh, provide some pressure on the yen. Um, yeah, so we're seeing dollar yen. No big surprise. And it's not just the dollar yen. It's very much a broad yen weakness here. Look at your euro yen trading at 145 plus, or at least it was uh, just before we stepped into the studio to record today. And I put a dolly in chart there on slide four. You can see the next little key points there, the 38.2% retracement. We've essentially achieved that. And the next one being the 200-day moving average. But if we're going to see uh, yields coming up higher in the coming week or two as we await the March 10th BOJ meeting, which will suddenly become very pivotal if we're trading on the highs in yields going into that meeting. It's Kuroda's last. Does he want to have some kind of legacy polishing move at that meeting? Uh, we could see some really spectacular two-way even volatility in the yen, uh, depending what the, the sort of the context is globally with the direction of yields. That 10-year JGB has just been pinned at the 50 basis point uh, cap or, um, that the Bank of Japan enforces with its uh, yield curve control policy. So uh, I think potential towards 140 plus here if we get an aggressive move in yields, but just keep your eye on yen crosses. It's one of the main things moving right now. And then the dollar very much uh, moving, I think, on a risk sentiment if we get a, a big capitulation in, um, in equities, for example, driven by uh, stronger U.S. yields, strong U.S. data, et cetera, I think that would be the most uh, dollar-supportive scenario. But uh, the, and so the elsewhere, that is the, the critical um, trend. Aussie, again, stumbling on that China recovery story. We think it's probably too early there, but there could be some tactical downside until we get some signs of some sort of buying coming in. Uh, Aussie, also, Aussie and other smaller currencies sensitive to uh, sentiment uh, swings here. One of the exceptions being the Swedish krona with the Riksbank really coming up with a much stronger message on rates. And I find that a very interesting change of behavior from past regimes. And then finally, Sterling getting a little bit out of this uh, peace or not peace announcement, but sort of accord on a post-Brexit settlement on the North Ireland uh, border. It was something that was necessary to do. Now it's been done. It does help the UK economy, certainly, for the longer haul 
but it doesn't seem to have a massive uh, sort of trigger. Uh, well, it didn't serve as a massive trigger for uh, follow-up action uh, beyond, let's say, 20, 20, 30 pips in euro sterling, for example. Uh, the cable moved was flattered by a weaker uh, dollar yesterday. All right, let's get to the stocks to watch today. I know you've got Zoom first on the uh, list there on slide seven, Peter. But uh, it feels to me like you know it's the it's the most uh, it's the it's the stock people like to trade the most. Heavy heavy options exposure on the the weekly expiries uh, and, and massive trading there. What's what's going on? What what are you looking for? It, it sounds like he's really tried to tease that it's a big a big event. He's and a big announcement he's set to make today with this master plan three. <laughs> Elon <laughs> Musk is certainly a showman, and um, he's always been a showman, and he will also be a showman tomorrow. <clears throat> he has also, and we we can say that he has also been also been quite impressive in terms of uh, building. Tesla and SpaceX uh, in terms of their engineering capabilities. So uh, he's not only a showman, but he's good at it. And the investor day tomorrow, as he said here, Master Plan 3. So back in 2006, before Tesla was was anything, and, and two years prior to its uh, near-death experience around Christmas in 2008, he laid out uh, what it was called the Master Plan. And it all started with, you know, you know build a roaster, very high-end uh, electric, uh, a, a very high-end electric vehicle for uh, for high-income earners, etc. And, and then your bootstrap uh, to cap positive cash flow. Use that cash flow, build a more affordable model. That um, that was the model uh, S, and then build uh, use the profits from the model S to do an even more affordable. That was the model three and model Y. And now, sort of, you're expanding into uh, as has expanded into solar, solar panels, uh, you know, home batteries, etc. And now the master plan three. He talks about a fully sustainable energy future, and um, we can only guess. But there was recently a. A, a teaser up on, on Tesla's own Twitter profile where they talked about the Tesla ecosystem, so energy generation, energy storage, and electric vehicles. Uh, very nice little uh, trailer you can see there um, if you if you go to uh, if you go to that tweet. And as you said, uh, you and I, John, we talked about this, and we are, I think also I have mentioned it on the podcast. And it doesn't seem like Tesla's biggest problem right now is access to batteries, access to lithium, access to the materials, or the production capabilities or capacity of its uh, car plants, it is potentially the grid. The grid is a, a very, very important infrastructure to ramp up electric vehicles, and it, it requires an enormous amount of capital expenditures, essentially from publicly owned or privately owned uh, utilities and permits from uh, from local governments and, 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 and states themselves. <clears throat> and, and that is something that Tesla can, uh, cannot control unless you somehow come up with a a system that is decentralized in a way, so you can get rid of all this uh, this uh, this government interference and 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 plans to build out the grid. Yeah, and I saw one blog post discussing as well. You know, maybe the the EV side or the battery side, for example, of the semi, which has been flagged for a couple of years now at least, uh, doesn't seem to have a production schedule, but could theoretically start production something like next year or the year after. I mean, these things require enormous amounts of charge capacity at very high rates. So yeah, I think the grid. To my mind, is quickly becoming the limiting factor here. The grid, the grid, the grid, not the batteries themselves, which I think the engineers, especially with potential new chemistries coming on board, they'll get that side of it figured out. It's the grid and what what powers the grid is that that massive overriding question. It, it, yeah. So the it's either something on the energy production or something on energy storage. And um, I, I think Elon Musk is smart enough to know that you know, his vertical integrated model here, he's even thinking about acquiring a lithium mining company and a refinery company. 
but also on the uh, the battery technology side of things, Cattle, the Chinese, the world's largest battery maker, is really progressing fast here. Also with sodium uh, batteries replacing lithium, I'm quite sure maybe that Elon Musk have been thinking things about you know batteries and storage. So that could also be the angle. I had a third option, John, very quickly. Sam Altman, which is the um, the CEO of uh, OpenAI and very good friend of Elon Musk, <clears throat> is also one of the largest shareholders in Helion. Uh, in a, in a fusion company called Helion. Uh, it's a very innovative fusion uh, reactor design, uh, and they are moving very close to their seventh generation, which is supposedly t- uh, to produce net positive electricity out of fusion energy. So maybe that's the big news. Who knows? It's going to be an interesting day in, in any case. And then Sumidio, as you mentioned, John, uh, shares were up 7%. It was not because of the revenue outlook, because as you can see here on slide 7, the, the Q1 revenue outlook was actually disappointing. And that one oh, uh, uh, sorry, $1.08 billion expected for Q1 in revenue translate into zero growth, actually, on the top line. So it's it's not growing its business, but it's uh, certainly laying off people and, and becoming more efficient. So the outlook for earnings was what really, uh, you know, mustered up some energy among investors and the shares were rallying 7%. But if we move to the to the calendar, so today um, we have two US earnings releases. I'm watching on the, um, I'm watching that both after the close. So first solar because of its angle on renewable energy and then Kubang, which I said was the South Korean e-commerce company. I, I like to look at South Korea as sort of a parameter of what's really happening outside of, uh, of China uh, and also generally uh, you know, what is the growth coming out of Asia. So we'll watch those. And then if you're super interested in uh, in electric delivery vans, then Rivian uh, Automotive, which at one point had a market cap of $100 billion with zero revenue, which is still, uh, and I think will remain the <laughs> world record for quite some time. Maybe we need a couple of decades before we can set a new record on that one. But those, uh, that, Rivian Automotive will also report today. All right. And uh, since we've been uh, talking a bit uh, much today, quick round out on uh, – thanks a lot, Peter. No. <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit about the macro calendar for today. We do have the first um, of the Eurozone CPI figures out this morning, uh, and then we have Germany up tomorrow and Eurozone Thursday. So a critical last uh, batch of CPI figures ahead of the next ECB meeting which you can see is coming up on March 16th. It is end of month today, a reminder. Uh, also watch for political signals out of China and on, especially on stimulus and policy with the two sessions meeting we've mentioned. Uh, that will be a big driver uh, of whether we can regenerate some interest in the near term on the China reopening story. And also with the Australia uh, Australian dollar suffering on that front, uh, a couple of uh, important data points up tonight, the CPI in particular, if that is hotter than expected, it could light a fire into the RBA expectations. U.S. consumer confidence is up today in the U.S. and a couple other minor surveys. And uh, yeah, I think really mostly it's going to be about this uh, this Friday's U.S. ISM services, and people have been a bit reluctant to, to uh, react to those. Well, they've been reacting to them, but they've been confusing over the last two months. So let's see if we get some uh, resolution uh, directionally on that after a supposedly the January figure might have been boosted by a very strong uh, or very mild weather, uh, allowing stronger services activity. So an interesting uh, rest of the week ahead. Uh, again, those those key support places uh, in place in the U.S. Do we break that or recapitulate or do we rally from here? It feels like it's uh, an either or set up uh, in the coming days. Stay careful out there and we'll be back tomorrow with the next Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>